0: Let's pray. Lord, there's no power in me outside of your spirit, but your word is full of power and life. And so, Lord, our prayer is very simple. Make your word breathe and live and energize it for us this morning through your spirit Take my weak mouth and my weak preparation and transform hearts and lives forever through this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Such a privilege to have been walking through the book of Jonah with you all in the last six weeks. And I'm very thankful for that opportunity. I'm thankful for God. Thank you. Thankful mostly for the God of Jonah. And uh, for this great book that he inspired for us to be so helped by. And if you're just joining us, I know I see some faces here that haven't been here with us during this series. If you're just joining us, what we've been doing is over the last five weeks, we've been studying the book of Jonah. And today we say goodbye to our good friend. And I have to confess that since this is the last message in the series that I'm a little sad about that. Because the more I read Jonah, the closer I feel or I get to Jonah. And I see, how, because I think I see how much I'm like him. But see, what we've discovered about Jonah in ourselves is actually just the tip of the iceberg. The worst of Jonah, believe it or not, is saved for last. And you can pick that up in the ethos of Jason's reading and and now you would think that since we've come all the way through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, that finally, when we get to chapter 4, that Jonah would have this thing figured out and that Jonah would close with this just fantastic ending where Jonah gets right with God and we end with, uh, you know, Jonah lives happily ever after. And isn't it great? But sadly, that's not what happened. In fact, Jonah lays... All of his self-righteous cards on the table in this chapter, right here. And he admits that his fear that God would be merciful to Nineveh is the very reason why he fled to Tarshish to begin with. He did not want God to extend grace to them. So in chapter 4, we meet Jonah in a fed-up state. He's miserable because he doesn't understand God's grace. Now, Jonah's happy. Let's be clear about this. Jonah's really happy to be a recipient of God's grace. But Jonah's not eager to extend God's grace. After all, I mean, God has been gracious to Jonah and rescued his life and saved him, not only from drowning, but then out of the belly of a fish. And so he's very grateful to be on the receiving end of God's grace. But when it came to extending God's grace to sinners... Jonah wanted nothing to do with that. He understands why God was gracious to him, but he can't understand for the life of him why God was gracious to them. And so he becomes bitter and frustrated and so angry. For Jonah, the reality is he would rather die than defer to God. He would rather give up than give in. And sadly, this is where so many people are today. Rather than, rather than give in to God and the claims he's making on your life, you determine nothing and no one will dethrone me. I am the captain of my ship. I will do things my way. I will take matters into my own hands. And as a result, when we do that, we are saying, in essence, to God, over my dead body. You will have no claim in my life. Now, we've seen many surprises in this book, but I think it's fair to say there's no greater surprise than chapter 4. The one we encounter here, Jonah, th- this is shocking, Jonah is angry at the success of his sermon. <laughs> Jonah is angry, not only at the success of his sermon, but at God's mercy. I mean, how... how disturbed is this guy his worst fears have come true and what are his worst fears that sinners repent that pagans repent i mean the text says in verse one that jonah was exceedingly displeased and angry he's a miserable man he's deeply troubled jealous angry proud and fundamentally he's self-righteous He's a self-righteous man. And from the beginning, we, all, we knew something was wrong with Jonah. But it's not until you get to chapter 4 that you begin to discover why or what's underneath Jonah's problems. And finally here, Jonah exposes himself. In fact, in these closing verses, the radical contrast between the sinful heart of man and the gracious heart of God are on full display. It's in 3D. And, and this is where we learn... A, Painfully, the most about ourselves. So you need to be thinking about yourself in this sermon as you see Jonah. See, Jonah's anger reveals two things about Jonah, and then God's response to Jonah's anger reveals two things about God. And we want to look at each of those things this morning. So first, Jonah's anger reveals two things about Jonah. Number one, Jonah doesn't get God's grace. The text says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, why is Jonah angry? Jonah's angry because God didn't do what he wanted God to do, which was destroy Nineveh. He wanted God to wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth. And now that tells us something about Jonah's view of grace. Clearly, Jonah is struggling with the fact that God is merciful to Nineveh. How could God do this? How could he show mercy to to those people, of all people? And Jonah's like, like, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. Verse 2, I knew you were going to show this pagan, godless city mercy, and it makes me mad. It makes me angry, God. I knew it. And that anger in Jonah... Reveals that Jonah doesn't get God's grace. But we see this in several ways in the text. And probably the most obvious way is that Jonah resents God. This is amazing. Jonah resents God for being merciful to sinners. Jonah is convinced that the wicked should be punished. This is what seems right in his eyes, and nothing short of Nineveh being being punished is going to be satisfactory to Jonah. So when God's anger toward Nineveh ends, Jonah's anger toward Nineveh rages on. It continues. Now, it's tempting to think here that maybe Jonah is not aware of the fact that he is a sinner. But more likely, probably what's going on here is that Jonah thinks that there are sinners And then there are sinners, right? See, Jonah largely is a good guy. Okay, it's not up until it's it's it's, it up until this point he's had a pretty successful prophetic career. He's he's been a good guy. He's obeyed God. He's taken God's message to God's people. He's kept the rules, and as a result, Jonah thinks that he's earned favor from God, or at least that God would reward him for his life of faithfulness. But Nineveh now, Nineveh's done nothing but live a godless, pagan, wicked, sinful, destructive, violent existence. And, and so J- Nineveh doesn't deserve any mercy from God, but Jonah does. And Jonah probably thinks, hey, I mean, God rescued me out of the belly of the fish, so clearly God is for me and God is, is seeing me, that I'm a righteous guy, so clearly I'm going to get mercy, but not those guys. Surely not those guys. And the real irony here is that not only is it that Jonah doesn't see his own deep rebellion, but here's the irony. The irony here is that Jonah has just experienced everything about God that he now despises. Everything that we find here in verse 2, God being gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster – Everything Jonah is angry with God for, he has just experienced himself. The irony is that no one in this story is in need of God's grace more or is less deserving of God's mercy than Jonah. Jonah has arisen all of a sudden in the plot of Jonah as the chief antagonist. He's the problem guy in this text. Everything that we find here in verse 2, I mean, he's angry about it. In fact, Jonah seems to be totally unaware, as I said a couple of weeks ago, that grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Remember that definition of grace I gave you? And that means that Jonah is not deserving and God is not obligated. But if we really understand, as a people, grace, and we deeply begin to get that into us, this notion of grace, then it will destroy every sense of superiority that we naturally nurture. Grace, it destroys our sense of superiority, that that you are better than those people. You know that feeling that, you know, I'm not a perfect guy. I, I realize that, but at least I'm not like her. I'm not, a perfect, I'm not a perfect guy, but at least I'm not like him who, who is a dishonest businessman. See, grace destroys that. What grace does is it levels the playing field totally. Grace says you don't deserve grace. You don't deserve God's gift any more than Hugh Hefner. Grace says that you don't deserve God's gift any more than Christopher Hitchens. Or Jerry Sandusky, you don't deserve grace. The natural inclination of our human heart, though, of our sinful heart, is to nurture some sense of superiority. Some sense. And all of us do this, that we are, you know, we're, we're better than some people. Some people. Now, we're not going to say that flippantly, but some people, you know, we actually think we're better than. I'm a little bit better than that guy. You know, just a little bit better than that guy. And so we run to our sense of superiority and not to the Savior for our meaning and significance and security. You know, that's what makes me significant. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I am. But you see, grace destroys that. If we understand grace to be... Listen, contra conditional acceptance, and I explained that a couple of weeks ago, con- despite who we are, contra conditional acceptance granted to an undeserving sinner by an unobligated giver, if we understand grace that way, then it destroys our sense of superiority. Now, when I was a kid, I remember someone explaining to me one time the difference between grace, mercy, and justice. Maybe this will be helpful to you. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And justice is getting what we exactly deserve. And here, Jonah doesn't realize that God is not obligated to provide him with either grace or mercy that what he really deserves is justice. Jonah doesn't get God's grace. I mean, clearly, his whole attitude toward the Ninevites makes this clear. Now, this leads us to the second thing that we learn about Jonah's anger. Jonah's anger reveals not only that he doesn't get God's grace, but secondly, that he doesn't get God's ways. Jonah doesn't get God's ways. He's confused about God and what God's up to. God's decision to extend mercy to Nineveh is a decision that Jonah radically disagrees with. Jonah's got a problem with God. And as I've said before, God calls a play here with Nineveh that Jonah hates. So Jonah gets up to the line of scrimmage and calls an audible And decides he's going to run a different play. But then God goes after him and says, I don't think so. You're going to run the original play. And when Jonah runs the original play, it's successful. And Jonah hates the fact that the play was successful. He's angry about it. (laughs) I mean, how juvenile and childish childish is Jonah? He got mad that God's play was successful. Not only did he get mad about that, he got mad that God called the play to begin with. See, Jonah has his own view of success, and his view of success and God's view of success are at odds. They're at loggerheads. They're completely diametrically opposed. God's view of success was a repentant city. Jonah's view of success was a destroyed city. God's view of success... Was a life changing sermon. Jonah's view of success was a meaningless, forgotten sermon with no effect. Jonah and God are on totally different pages here. So again, the sinful heart of man and the gracious heart of God are contrasted here. Fundamentally, Jonah is a racist. That's really what's happening. Jonah is a racist. Now we normally think about racism as one nationality or race uh, sort of antagonistic to another, but really racism is broader than that. <clears throat> Jonah, <clears throat> Jonah is a racist by anybody's definition. To put it another way, Jonah has a tribal heart, while God has a missionary heart. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me let me try to unpack that for a second. <clears throat> this concept of tribal versus missionary uh, first hit me when I was reading a book by Andrew F. Walls, who's a missiologist. And uh, when I was studying at the Bethlehem Institute, um, John Piper recommended that we read this book called um, uh, on, on Missiology, um, it was an unpacking of Ephesians. And Andrew Walls talks about the, the wall of hostility in Ephesians. And when he gets to that section, he's got this whole uh, dynamic there on a tribal versus missional mentality. And it's really helpful. And it's, uh, it's helped my thinking a lot. And jo- Jonah here has a tribal heart. Here, here's, what, here's what's going on. There's a big difference, folks, between a tribal heart and a missionary heart. Let me explain. Let's think about ourselves as a church for a minute. Here, here's the deal. A church can think of itself, and you know what, in fact does think of itself, in one of two ways. A local church can either think of itself as a tribe or as a mission. Now, <clears throat> there's a major difference between having a tribal mindset as a church and having a missionary mindset. The highest value of a church that adopts a tribal mindset Is self protection. A tribal community is a community that exists solely to protect itself from those who are different than they are. And so they build thick walls of protection, hoping and praying that those bad people, that those bad things don't get in. It's a community that exists merely to protect itself and to keep itself pure from outsiders. It's a community which thrives on believing that their taste and preferences are greater or superior to everyone else's tastes and preferences. In short, it's a self-righteous community. Now, sadly, many Christians and churches who preach the gospel and who believe the gospel are ironically very tribal. And the reason is that those churches are filled with tribal-minded people like me. That's how that happens. Now, the highest value of a missionary-minded community is not self-protection, but self-sacrifice. A missionary-minded community exists not primarily for self, but for others, It's a community of people who are willing to be inconvenienced and discomforted and spent for the gladness of others and for the greatness of God. And those are radically different. That's what a missionary community does. Now, as I said, many churches are tribally minded, and a tribal mindset is antithetical to the gospel. Why why do I say that? Why why is it a tribal mindset? I thought purity and keeping purity was a good thing. That is a good thing. It's true. But a tribal mindset is antithetical to the gospel. Here's why. Because the gospel demands that we be missionary-minded because the gospel is a story of God sacrificing himself for his enemies. That's the gospel. And we are to image God. Listen, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. He has blazed a trail for us, and we are to act like him. Now, what's so clearly shown in this story is that Jonah is tribal, and God is missional. That's crystal clear here. Jonah runs from his enemies. God runs toward his enemies. Jonah is on a mission of revenge God is on a mission of rescue. Jonah is racially exclusive. God is racially inclusive. Jonah is all about self-protection. God is all about self-sacrifice. Now, if you're self-righteous like me, and you are, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, then you will be tempted to read this story And conclude that you are not like Jonah. That When the whole point of Jonah is that you are just like Jonah. Now, we would never admit this, I don't think, at least publicly, but test yourself. All right? I'm going to give you a test. Test yourself. What do you do? What do you do when God shows favor to people you don't like? How does that make you feel? How do you treat people who hurt you and seek to destroy your life? Listen, it's easy to love people who are lovely and kind, but how do you love your enemies and bless those who persecute you? How do you do that? How do you lay down your life for people who are scheming to take it? Here's how. It's understanding that Jesus laid down his life for people who were scheming to take his. It's, it's understanding who Jesus is. Winning the battle involves dying, not killing. Jesus came to die for his enemies, not kill them. And so big Christians don't take matters into their own hands. Christian, you don't have to avenge yourself. You can leave the matter to God. God's response and his vindication is way more impressive than your response and your strength. It's far more impressive. And God has always fought for those who cast their cares upon him. Isn't that great? You are free to leave the matter to Jesus. You're free to do that. And he will take up your cause Loving your enemies requires a deep, penetrating understanding of the gospel, of God's grace. The only thing more shocking than God showing mercy to your enemies is God showing mercy to you. And you have to have that mentality. That, that's how you love your enemies. Extending undeserving grace to undeserving people requires a deep apprehension of the fact that undeserving grace has been extended to me, an undeserving sinner. The reorienting power of the Word of God is bottomless. Friends, drink deep and be transformed. That's what Jonah needs. Jonah needs his perspective to be totally reoriented. Jonah doesn't get God's grace, and he doesn't get God's ways, and so he's angry. And to the degree that he doesn't get God's grace and get God's ways, Jonah's soul shrivels and shrinks. Self-righteous people shun grace, and when they do that, they become so small and so pitiful and so miserable. Life itself becomes unbearable. What about you? What happens when it becomes clear that God's plan is different than your plan? When you don't get your way, when, when, when God says no to your desire, do you take matters into your own hands? Do you think that your way will somehow be better than God's way? Do you realize this is the essence of slavery? It's thinking that, you know, really, my way is better than God's way, so I'm just going to do it my own way, and I'm going to push forward, and I'm going to get my plan accomplished. And true freedom comes when you submit to God and you say, God's way is better. And I humbly bow to him and his providence. How do you respond when you don't get God's way? Big Christians reorient their perspective by drinking deep from the life-transforming fountain of the gospel. So that when a trial comes, a big Christian hears God whispering in his ear these words. In the midst of trial, when through fiery trials, your pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not harm you. I only designed your dross to consume and your gold to refine The soul that on Jesus leans for repose, I will not. I will not desert to his foes. That soul, soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. That's what Jonah needs. He needs to be transformed by a divine perspective. And so God teaches him two things in the rest of this chapter about himself. And these things are are very simple and short, and so I saved them for last. Number one, God doesn't give up on his people. Isn't that a great thought? God doesn't give up on his people. The only thing more shocking than our sin is God's grace. In spite of us, contrary to what we are, God's love is relentless in its pursuit of us. Now, in verses 5 through 11 here, God comes after Jonah again, and he wants to teach Jonah two final lessons. And the first lesson is this. It's very simple. Jonah, your anger is debilitating. <clears throat> we see that in verses 4 and on. Jonah says, it's better for me to, to die than live. Okay, that's pretty debilitating. That's like suicidal. You're pretty well done at that point. And God is telling Jonah, look, man, this thing is killing you literally. Jonah's down in the dumps and he's there because, listen, he's chosen to be there. Now, there's a common conception in our day and age that if you're depressed, it's not your fault. If you're down in the dumps, it's not your fault ever for any reason. Now, of course... There are medically induced problems with depression. I'm not denying that. Of course that happens. And it probably happens more than we think. But here's what happens. We just totally overlook the fact that our choices and what we do with our life has a drastic effect on how we feel. Drastic effect. And and here, Jonah has made some choices. And he's totally self-absorbed. Think about God. God did everything he had promised to do for Jonah, but it wasn't good enough for Jonah. God had been faithful to Jonah, but it wasn't enough. God had pursued Jonah relentlessly and loved him and embraced him and continually forgiven him, but it wasn't enough for Jonah. Jonah sat down in self-pity and he sulked like a grade school kid. He just sulked. He had an adult temper tantrum. Jonah sat down, and he sulked, and he made a choice in how he responded to God's plan. Jonah said, destroy Nineveh. God said, nope, I'm having mercy to Nineveh. So Jonah sits down, and he says, I don't like this. And he sulks, and he made a choice, and we make choices about how we respond to God's plan. And Jonah chose a self-centered outlook. You know what I'm talking about, this self-centered outlook? Anybody been around anybody that's self-centered? (laughs) <laughs> ourselves? Yes. Every day. But but what's it like when you're, when you're there and, and, and you're just around somebody who's just totally self-absorbed? See, a self-centered outlook is when you get off to a place and all you can think about is yourself. I'm just thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about anyone else. I'm, not, I'm just thinking about me. Stop looking at me. Why are you people looking at me? Just get away from me. And, and you ask me to do this and ask me to do that and and and, and what about me? And what about my needs? And, and when am I going to get my stuff met? And who's going to help me? Listen, when you start thinking like that, you're going down. You are going down and that's so godless and so wicked. Make a note of this. At, a self-centered outlook is at the heart of every broken relationship. Every broken marriage, for example, is due to a selfish, self-centered outlook at some level. And here's the thing, when, when a self-centered attitude is not kept in check, it becomes a, a self-pitying attitude. There's a difference there. One sort of leads to the other. Self-centeredness turns to self-pity. And when self is at the center, all perspective is gone. Jonah's got blinders on. Only thing Jonah can see is how bad his life is. I'm ready to die. I don't care about Nineveh. I don't care about God. I don't care about Israel. I don't care about anything but me. And my life is terrible. That's all he cares about. And so Jonah says, please, Lord. This isn't like please and thank you. This is please. Please, Lord. Take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Self-pity is killing Jonah, literally. And God says so calmly, Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry? Now, How gracious is that? Isn't, Isn't God awesome? I love God. It is. how gracious is that how soft and tender and in fact god is saying to jonah look man like hundred and twenty thousand people had just been converted and a city has been turned upside down for paganism i'm thrilled and you're miserable who's wrong well i wrote these things down two reasons for jonah's anger number one Jonah, two reasons. Jonah, number one, was not truly reconciled to God's plan. He says not. He never, ever was on board with God's plan. Externally, he got on the boat, and he did what God said. But internally, he didn't want to do what God asked him to do. And I wonder how many people uh, here are sitting here this morning, and you're saying, I'm just here because I have to be here. My parents make me come here. I have to sit through these long services and listen to these sermons and and I have to go to all these things and just pray all the time and and family devotions and I just have to be here but the truth be the truth be told you'd be a lot happier somewhere else off at college somewhere away from your parents away from the church and doing what you want to do and that's Jonah Jonah is just doing it cuz he has to but God goes after him and shows him Shows him his, himself with his one final lesson at the end of the chapter. So he's not—he's never been truly reconciled to God's plan. Here's the second thing: Jonah had forgotten God's mercy to him. I, I think that's clear. Jonah had forgotten God's mercy. I mean, how foolish! Like 15 minutes ago, this dude was in a fish, and now he's arguing with God. I mean, how dumb is that? Yeah. You got thrown over a boat, you're this close to dying, God rescues you with a fish, you sit in a fish for three days and three nights and, and, and get all nasty and smelly and you come out and this miracle happens. You get thrown up on a beach and then you go in begrudgingly and you preach this sermon and you sit out and you sulk and then you want to argue with God about how he did something dumb and by, by converting lost sinners. I mean, on, on so many levels, Jonah is so messed up. How, and how soon do we forget God's blessing and provision and grace? How quick are we to conclude that just because I'm going through a tough season and all of a sudden this is terrible and my life is, all this stuff's raining down on me and nobody cares about me and nobody takes my interest into view and, and I'm the only one that thinks this way and I'm the only one that pray, prays about this or thinks about this and, and, and you're just so self absorbed and pretty soon you start thinking, you know what, I don't even know if God's good to me anymore. And and, and everybody's letting you down, and, 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 and how quickly do we conclude that God's not good or God doesn't love me or whatever? Listen, God has always been good to you. He has never let you down. You and I never have a reason to be angry with God. I just don't recommend this tone of Jonah with God. Okay, this tone of please, Lord, that's never an appropriate tone to God. And we have no reason to be angry with, with God ever. And God just simply asked Jonah, do you have a reason to be angry? Now, look at the text. And notice Jonah's response at the end of verse 4. What does Jonah say? Nothing. Absolutely nothing the end of verse 4. Now, you can take that a couple of different ways. But I like to think that Jonah's silence isn't like, I'm busted, Silence. Because he turns around and says it's better for me to die in just a little while. I tend to think what Jonah's saying is Do you think I'm gonna answer that? It's it's almost like you ever said to somebody, like, Why are you so angry? it's your spouse? And and they're just not gonna answer you. And what they're communicating by that is, duh, of course I'm angry. I think that's Jonah's attitude here. Jonah is basically saying, God says, you have a reason to be angry. And Jonah's like, duh, of course I have a reason to be angry. They're like, yeah, of course, totally angry. I'm mad. That, that's, his, that's his silence here, I think. So Jonah's, Jonah's really angry. So verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade. So he should see what would become of the city. Now, I was a communications major in college, and um, I don't know if you know anything about um, how much you know about social skills and communication, but this would be a really bad time to try to talk to Jonah. <laughs> okay, if you go up to Jonah and you're like, hey, hey, Jonah, look, man, i got to call you out on your sin. Yeah. I've noticed now that you're kind of, you know, you're you're arguing with God, and you're you're not right about this. And and you know, let me share some wisdom with you. Jonah's gonna be like, "Get out of my face! I'm not talking to you right now." And and when you get and when you and Jonah's just seething, and when you and I get that kind of attitude going, you don't want anybody to talk to you. We don't want anybody to talk to us. Someone might come up to you, and and they want to offer some bit of wisdom, and and you're not going to have that. You don't want to listen to the wisdom because you're having a pity party, and no one else is invited. And see, this is what happens. Self-absorbed people, they like to be alone, and they like to be by themselves, and they like to tell other people, here's the thing, that nobody cares about me, and I have no one to talk to. You know what? I don't believe that. I basically don't believe that. I don't believe that when people get self-centered and self-pitying and self-absorbed that they have nobody to talk to. I think rather we cultivate that notion that we're all by ourselves and nobody understands me and nobody really gets it and nobody really knows what I'm going through. And they just push me down and I'm just totally relegated to just just nothing. And if you're thinking like that, you're going down. And you're in trouble. See, self-pity takes you down, and ultimately, it makes people quit. And Jonah quits. See, I hate to tell you this, but this is how Jonah ends. Jonah ends with a quitter. Jonah quits. He's like a kid who throws his Xbox controller on the ground and says, I quit because I lost the game. And when people quit, when they get alone, what happens is they burn inside with resentment. And when they get alone, you know what it is? You know what the first thing they say is? Here's what they say. Well, you can't do it without me. You're going to be really sorry that y'all treated me like this. You can't do it without me. And this thing's going down without me. And then that goes on for a while, and then they're like, "Ah, because it's going well. (laughs) And then pretty soon they're like, okay, all right, but it's not going as good as it used to (laughs) without me. I mean, it might be going, but it ain't like the good old days. The best days are behind you, and since you don't have me, it's never going to be great. And that goes on for a while, and then they're like, "Ah, it's doing even better. And you know what comes after that? Bitterness. And resentment. And a hard heart. And that's the first thing that God teaches Jonah. That his anger is debilitating. And it's ruining his life. And you know what? It's ruining everybody else's life around him. Who wants to be around somebody like that? And it's this vicious cycle. Because the more you do that, the less people want to be around you. And the less people be around you, the more you feel like, I have nobody around me. Mm -hmm. And there might be a good reason for that. There's no gospel there. Jonah is gospel-less. He's grace-less. And it's ruining Jonah. And God is teaching Jonah that. Here's the second thing. God is teaching Jonah that his love is misplaced. Verse 6. God appoints a plant to give Jonah shade. And interestingly enough, verse 6 is the only place, you know, this in the entire book where Jonah's glad about something. <laughs> I'm convinced of this, that there is nothing that we are to emulate about Jonah in the book of Jonah. Nothing. I'm convinced of that. Everything we learn about Jonah, we learn by way of negative example. And anyway, what happens is he gets attached to this plant and then God kills it Which is actually a very kind thing for God to do. Because in so doing, God is showing Jonah his misplaced affection. Jonah doesn't understand the generosity of God's love. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the rich generosity of God's mercy and God's love to Nineveh. The fact that God's love is offered to all people without distinction irritates Jonah. Jonah says, I thought that your affection was exclusively reserved for us, the Israelites. And this idea that God loves all kinds of people and not just Israelites burns him up. It's as if Jonah were saying to God, I don't get your love. And then God says, excuse me, I don't get your love. You love plants more than people. Look at this. Look at this, Jonah. You're upset that the plant has died. And God is here revealing to Jonah that he values a plant more than people. And maybe it's not a plant for us, but it's something. It's a hobby. It's money. It's your job. What's consuming you? What's driving your passion more than people and God? And God is revealing to Jonah and to all of us that we love temporary things more than eternal things. You do that. I do that. You love temporary things more than eternal things. And God is saying to Jonah and to us, wake up. Wake up, because plants isn't what we exist for. We exist for people and for God. God's deepest affections outside of himself are reserved for people. In God's economy, people come before projects. In other words, people are God's projects. And as we have received grace vertically, we are to extend grace horizontally. That's what we're to be about as a people. That's our job. That's our goal. And the great thing is God doesn't give up on his people, and that leaves us with the last thing we learn about God. See, God's still teaching Jonah. He's still relentless in his pursuit. Here's the last thing that we learn about God, that not only does God not give up on his people, but God doesn't give up on his world. Verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I love how that ends. I love this cattle thing. Because while it's true that God's deepest affections are for people, it's not true that God's love is only for people. See... This is a very important thing for us. In fact, that last line simply says, and also much petal. And if you've been paying attention to the plot of Jonah, you walk away from this just, just like, what in the world? Like that's no way to end a story. I mean, even from a literary standpoint. Why don't you end a story like that. But listen, in this one line is packed. It's packed with beauty. In this one line we get a sneak peek at the glory of redemption and the size of God's mission the size of his mission and Romans 8 teaches us very clearly that not only are people groaning for redemption but creation itself itself is crying "Maranatha come Lord Jesus" And we are to love God's creation like he does, and we should care deeply about society and the culture that we live in. And if that makes you sound like a liberal, then too bad, because that's the way the Bible talks. And by ending this way, God is reminding us that he is in the process, this is great, of reversing the curse, of restoring all things to himself God isn't looking at the anger that, I mean sorry, God isn't looking at the world in anger and saying, Oh, I'm just I'm giving it all up. God looks at the, the world in love and says, I'm getting it all back. That's what God's doing. God isn't done with the world and He's not done with you because you're a part of the world, and that's good news for us. This is cosmic redemption and reconciliation. So what about Jonah? The story seems to end so abruptly with God posing this last question to Jonah. What a rebuke to Jonah, as well as much cattle. I mean, Jonah's just fired up about that plant. And God's like, How about the cattle? And and, and you, you don't you don't give a rip about Nineveh and 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 I care about 120,000 persons and cattle and get get a grip, Jonah. And, And here at the very end, you're wondering, what happens to Jonah? Why does it end this way? What happened to him? You know what? The truth is, we don't really know what happened to Jonah. The story is left unfinished. But that, my friends, I think is the purpose, is the point. It calls us to write the final paragraph. It remains unfinished so that you and I will provide our own conclusion to its message. Because after all, you are Jonah, and I am Jonah. The the question is, how will we respond to God's mission and grace? I think there's good reason to think Jonah responded well. My confidence rests in the fact that God is relentless in his pursuit of us, and he would have been relentless in his pursuit of Jonah to the very end. I'm also confident about that because this source material came from Jonah. So presumably he came to a pretty thorough, humbling repentance over this whole ordeal. And he paints himself in the darkest of colors because he's not trusting in himself anymore. He's resting in grace. We've seen a lot. God's mission, Jonah's sin, God's grace. These are major things in the book of Jonah But there's one place in human history where our sin, God's grace, and God's mission all converge. And that place is the cross. That's where we see it in full clarity. We see God's grace hanging in the bloodied, beaten, naked, and forsaken person of Christ as he stands in our place. And it's our sin that we see on his shoulders. And it's bearing down upon Christ with such a horrible and toxic weight that it crushes the God-man himself. But there we also see God's intervention, his mission to reverse the curse of sin and recreate all things. Yes, Jesus is all over the story of Jonah. And after all, it's a story, Jonah is, of sin and grace. It's a story of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that shows that while we are great sinners, God is a great Savior. It's a story about how a God of great expenditure relentlessly pursues sinful fugitives like me and you. It's a story that shows that while our sin stretches far, God's grace stretches farther. It's a story that shows how God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. It's a story about an indulgent God, this hound of heaven who tracks his sinful children down and wrecks them in his grace. And what we learn is that not only are we unable to flee from God's presence, but ultimately we are unable to flee from God's grace. And I trust that has been a very and will continue to be a very liberating thought for us. Let's pray. Lord, take your word and drill down deep with your spirit and change us forever to this great book of Jonah for which we give you great thanks for. In Jesus' name, amen.